Interested in taking a deep dive each week into a compliance or compliance-related topic? Then Compliance Into the Weeds is the podcast for you. Join Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, as they go into the weeds to flesh out a story which you can use to better inform your compliance program. Both you and your compliance program will be the better for listening to this podcast. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, Matt and I take a deep dive into the J&F FCPA enforcement action. It was one of the most bold and audacious bribery and corruption schemes we've seen in many years in FCPA enforcement. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Unfortunately, this podcast did not exist in 2008 when the Siemens FCPA settlement was announced. But today we have one that's going to be equally bold, equally audacious, and frankly, equally fun. We're going to take out the JNF Investments FCPA settlement. So, Matt, uh, first of all, welcome. And uh, you want to give the listeners a, a short rendition of the background facts of this case? Yeah, I'll, uh, hello, Tom. I'll do my best here, but the, the facts and the history are so long and convoluted that it's, it's not easy. But um, so here's what had just happened is that last week, um, JNF Investments settled its FCPA investigation with the Justice Department and the Securities and Exchange Commission. And JNF will in total pay U.S. regulators uh, $283.3 million. Um, that will include pleading one, pleading guilty to one count of violating the FCPA on the criminal side, uh, a three-year cooperation deal, um, although not a deferred prosecution agreement, a cooperation deal. So JNF Investments and its subsidiaries, we'll get to that in a moment, uh, that they will help prosecutors chase down individuals involved here. Um, the $283 million breaks down to $256.5 million in a criminal penalty that goes to the Justice Department. Half of that will be forgiven because JNF is a Brazilian firm that is also paying the largest anti-corruption settlement, I think, ever down in Brazil with a $1.4 billion penalty down there. So half of the 256 penalty up here is going to be forgiven and credited to the $1.4 billion that JNF is paying down there in Brazil. And we have a $27 million um, disgorgement and uh, penalties and interest to the SEC. Uh, all of this gets to JNF owns the largest meatpacking business in the world called JBS, which has a U.S. subsidiary, JBS USA, uh, which in 2009 bought Pilgrim's Pride, which is based in Colorado, and then uh, tried various other machinations to expand its meat processing empire. But long story short is that JNF Investments is the personal vehicle of one Josley and what is the other one, Wesley Batista, who are business royalty in Brazil. The Batista brothers paid $150 million in bribes to Brazilian banking officials who then, in exchange, fronted them $2 billion in financing for their corporate empire, which included acquiring Pilgrim's Pride in 2009. I told you all listeners, I said this is going to be long and convoluted, um, but the bribery schemes 
preceded the Pilgrim's Pride deal all the way back to 2005. They uh, extended beyond that acquisition all the way to 2017 when the Bautista brothers, I think, finally flipped down in Brazil um, to uh, they basically knocked out on the Brazilian presidents, several different Brazilian presidents who were engaged in corruption. Um, Tom, help me out with other details, because I think we could just go on all day long just on the background. But that's what happened last week to bring JNF investments to our FCPA attention right now. Right. So just a, a couple of other uh, uh, slide additions. There were three financing vehicles in Brazil that uh, were bribed by the Brothers Batista. In addition to Bindez, there was uh, Petros and Caxa. Uh, both, uh, dealt, both held um, retirement and pension funds of Brazilian workers. So we had uh, state-owned enterprises, we had uh, not a lot of detail around the use of the corrupt funds in Brazil. The FCPA order and the Securities and Exchange Commission administrative order focused on the Pilgrim's Pride deal. The I started off by saying this was bold and audacious, and it, it really was. Uh, as Matt said, there was $150 million paid to three Bindez officials, it was not clear from any of the resolution documents how, if they uh, shared that money with other government officials, or how that money may have been distributed internally, either to corrupt Brazilian politicians or to political parties in Brazil. But we had uh, 150 million paid to three individuals, which of course ain't chicken feed. Uh, then we had uh, numerous other, I think, 25 million paid to Caxia and about 75 million paid to Petros officials. Uh, we had a, a, amazingly enough, these monies were distributed through the U.S. banking system. Um, the payments were made in New York. They were stri- distributed to shell companies through banks in New York. So we had clear U.S. jurisdiction over this. Uh, I think for the first time we saw the purchase of a Manhattan apartment as a bribe. Uh, that was for one of the officials for Petros, I believe who came up and actually mm-hmm. uh, selected the apartment he wanted. Um, so that was uh, perhaps a new wrinkle on a bribe we had not seen before, Matt. I'm not sure the internal control necessary for that. But the um, the the benefit obtained in the financing is not something we had traditionally seen in an FCPA, FCPA case. Obviously a contract or some other benefit, a tax benefit or something, but uh, to receive funding at that level uh, – was uh, unique, but the uniqueness consider, uh, continued rather with the Pilgrim's Pride transaction. And here, um, JNF bought Pilgrim's Pride, which was a, at that point a Texas chicken processor, out of bankruptcy in Texas. And uh, then they consolidated it with some other uh, meat and chicken packing, uh, uh, processing rather, uh, properties to create um, their U.S. empire. JNF USA, which was headquartered in Colorado. But the uh, the use, the commingling of funds was really detailed in the SEC order. And you want to maybe walk through that a little bit? Yeah, this was really, to me, the interesting part. Although, before I forget, I'm going to get back to the apartment in New York as a bribe because there, there, there is an internal control issue there. But um, what had happened here and what I thought was so shocking was that when JBS USA acquired Pilgrims, um, it essentially had such a 
interwoven, overlapping oversight structure and managerial structure that, to me, it's hard to see where Pilgrim's Pride began and where JBS ended and vice versa. Um, Just for example, so um, Wesley Batista was a board member of JBS and CEO and board member of JBS USA and chairman of the Pilgrim's Board of Directors and Compensation Committee. And JBS USA was the majority owner of Pilgrim's Pride. Um, Meanwhile, Josely Batista was CEO and chairman of JBS, but not JBS USA. That was his brother. He but. Josely was on the board of JBS USA, and he was a member of Pilgrim's Board of Directors, although not the chairman of that board, and neither of them were CEO of Pilgrim's Pride. But already, I've like twisted everything into a pretzel here trying to figure this out. Meanwhile, on an operational level, uh, Pilgrim's Pride and JBS USA were sharing office space. They were sharing financial reporting uh, IT systems. They were sharing accounting policies and training materials. Uh, Several key executives who were not the Batista brothers, but several key executives held roles in both businesses. Um, Six of the nine people on Pilgrim's board in the 2010s had ties to JBS. Um, And until 2015, and Pilgrim's was bought by JBS in 2009. So for six years, until 2015, Both businesses even relied on the same code of conduct, which was supplied by JBS. Um, So for all of that, that meant on a practical level that JBS USA had its fingers wrapped all over Pilgrim's Pride's operations and used Pilgrim's Pride revenue and monies and accounting policies to pay for the bribes that JBS was using to do other things up to and including paying back the bank that they had bribed for the financing to buy Pilgrim's Pride. And the other shocking thing to me, Tom, was that according to the SEC order, at least, throughout all of this, Pilgrim's Pride had no idea that the rest of this was happening under its nose. Um, you know, it, it being all of the bribery, and I guess that, you know, under its nose was because it was happening under the auspices of JBS USA, which was quasi similar to or overlapping with Pilgrim's Pride. But um, technically speaking, Pilgrim's Pride was, I guess you'd say the victim here because the settlement was with, I think, JBS and JNF. Uh, it's just like, you know, uh, the SEC had complained that Pilgrim's had no internal controls to detect all of this. That was one issue in the SEC order. On the other hand, I'm kind of stuck trying to figure out you know, what kind of internal accounting controls would you have to detect and prevent this pervasive violating sort of misconduct from your owner. Uh, I don't know, but that's that's what happened here. So typically, Matt, when you have a corrupt entity taking over another company, it's to milk the revenues from that company uh, for ill-gotten gain or fraud simply to take it. But here we have the anomaly of monies being paid from Pilgrim's Pride and JBJNF USA to um, uh, uh, the corrupt bankers in Brazil or, or payments for uh, bribes being paid for promises made. Um, so perhaps that that satisfies that. But you're absolutely on to something is on where was the Pilgrim's Pride internal controls? Also, I think you initially pointed out that Pilgrim's Pride had no compliance function, period. 
Uh, although they shared this code of conduct, they had no separate code of conduct. They're a U.S. listed company without their own code of conduct, without compliance policies and procedures, without even a compliance function. Yeah, uh, you know, we should say, as much as I said earlier, that you know, it kind of feels like Pilgrims is the victim here. Only kind of, because um, as late as 2018, so this is seven years after, um, I'm sorry, nine years after JBS acquired them from bankruptcy, at least one year after the Bautistas had disclosed to Pilgrims, we're as corrupt as the day is long, we're cooperating with Brazilian regulators, we're leaving the board, have fun. Uh, Still, it took Pilgrims another year after that to um, finish implementing a formal anti-bribery program. For a long time, it had no compliance personnel. Like, what were we expecting to happen here if your internal compliance program is so immature? Um, I was going to say neutered, except I don't know that Pilgrims really had any compliance program to be neutered. Um, It didn't have anything for most of the 2010s. Um, So I just... I struggle with what lessons can be learned here for most compliance officers, because as much as we might marvel at this misconduct, the size and audacity of what went on is just like there's so many are you kidding me moments and details to this. But I don't know that there are all that many instances where listeners are going to be bought out of bankruptcy by a giant corrupt conglomerate uh, where they might have to perform due diligence on their new owner. I like I don't think it comes up that much. So I I struggle with what are some of the good lessons to learn here. But Christ, it's a fascinating case. You know, that's a great point, Matt. I can only think of one other close FCPA case, which was a reverse Chinese merger back in 2010, where a corrupt Chinese company bought a U.S. company uh, and immediately engaged or was determined to engage in FCPA violations for which they were not um, under U.S. jurisdiction before they did the reverse merger. Um, the, um, I guess the, the thing I would maybe fall back on is because this was so bold, because this is so audacious, could we perhaps draw a lesson that compliance practitioners occasionally need to, to consider bold and audacious? That's something that you and I would think is really beyond the pale that, that either no one would do it or we've made up a story, uh, for a submission of a screenplay to Hollywood actually happens in the FCPA world. And perhaps one of the examples where it happened was J and F. You know, I would like to hope, and maybe I'm naive that the bold and totally shameless uh, bribery schemes are receding as anti-corruption regimes move forward. There's probably many people who just smiled and said, Matt, that's really cute that you think that, but I'd like to hope that this potential (laughs) is receding. Um, I would say that, you know, if you are involved in a merger where you're a target, should you perhaps devote some thought and attention to the corruption risks of the acquiring company? Yes, you should. On the other hand, most M&A deals aren't where the target picks or where the acquirer picks up the target out of bankruptcy, where your ability to do things might be much more limited. Uh, we get into bankruptcy law areas there that I'm out of my depth on. But, you know, even this M&A deal that JBS did with Pilgrim's Pride, it's not like most J- uh, M&A deals because most don't happen in bankruptcy. Um, the only other point that I did want to circle back to was the detail about JNF purchasing an apartment in New York where the Brazilian banker flew up to New York to pick out the apartment that he wanted. 
And then after they bought the apartment, JNF Investments transferred title of that unit to the corrupt banker. Um, remember, folks, uh, when you think about or when you hear about FinCEN saying that there needs to be more attention paid to luxury real estate deals in certain markets, including New York and Miami and Los Angeles, and I think a few other cities, I think San Francisco as well, um, where you have to perform due diligence on where did this apartment come from? Where's the title? What is the chain of ownership? Like That is relatively new. That order from FinCEN, geographic targeting orders, they came about well after this deal uh, in New York with JNF. But like that is why we have these things, uh, because other companies do pull these stunts. So if you are involved in your company acquiring a luxury apartment or somehow a luxury apartment becomes one of the assets that your company is looking at for some deal – uh, yes, you do have to think about where did this come from, because it can be part of the uh, quid pro quo that uh, generates FCPA trouble. I mean, it's, this, it's weird. It Usually it happens for money laundering, not anti-bribery. But um, that's where these geographic tar- targeting orders come from. So that that's one practical detail that you might encounter that JB, JNF uh, gives us a teachable moment. But um, the rest of it is just like a like Tom, you said, it's a Hollywood film. Uh, of FCPA misconduct. You got to wonder how, whoever thought this would end any way other than the way it did. So maybe one of the potential answers is that if you are approached uh, by a potential buy or, uh, you do have to make some inquiries to the source of their money. Although I'm not sure you could even have pinned, pinned that down. If Mendez is offering two, $2 billion in financing, that's the Brazilian National Bank. It'd be like the Bank of England offering financing or the U.S. Fed if that occurred. Um, that's probably not an inquiry you would go much beyond. So um, uh, just a, a fascinating case. I was wondering if we might, Matt, spend a couple of minutes talking about, because this is one thing I've been thinking about, the Brothers Batista. And yeah. uh, you noted that they were business royalty in um, uh, Brazil. In fact, the SEC order, I believe, I actually quoted it. They were very well known in the meat industry and associated with the highest levels of Brazilian politicians, including several sitting presidents, ministers, and other Brazilian officials. Um, Do you think, and I've been wondering, were they think they were above the law? Did they think they were the law? Uh, Did they just not consider any laws, period? Are we talking about a level of persons that are, are so um, sociopathic that it doesn't matter what the law is, they're not going to follow it. Uh, my honest answer is I don't know. I was not familiar with the Batista brothers uh, before this came up. But um, I, you know, we do have to remember that uh, I believe they are the second generation of the Batista business empire down in Brazil. Um and maybe we could draw some analogies to a certain business and political family here in the United States where there are several uh, children of a sitting U.S. president who certainly seem to behave in the same amoral ways. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we also have to remember that when this corruption started in the mid-2000s, the Brazil Clean Companies Act had not been passed. That wasn't until 2015. Uh, the real widespread anti-corruption riots that convulsed Brazil in the 2010s, they had not yet happened. 
Uh, Brazil was a much more corrupt country then than it is today. I would offer that Brazil is still not that anti-corrupt of a country. Uh, It still has issues, but it had many more issues back then. So, you know, as I was reading it, I actually was thinking this was like the inverse of a state-owned business. This was more like a business-owned state. I I don't know that the people who travel in the Bautista circles at that time, I don't know that they would have made any distinctions between what's the state, what's the business, what's my private interest, what is my business interests. Um, They just saw that, you know, this was a predatory exercise of power to uh, increase your wealth and anything goes, which, you know, we still see strains of that here in the United States too. So, it is what it is. Well, Matt, perhaps uh, the final word might be something along the lines of JNF and now uh, enters the pantheon of completely over-the-top uh, FCPA cases that if you and I told someone these stories, they would look at us and say uh, no one would. Uh, you know, that's very possible, Tom. I'm going to give our le- uh, readers a teaser because the Wall Street Journal announced today that Goldman Sachs has – Reserve $2.8 billion for its 1MDB settlement. So uh, if not next week, look forward to our discussions of that case, listeners. Yes, indeed. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. Also, check out the show notes where I have additional resources available in forms of blog posts written by Matt or myself. I hope you'll join Matt and I again next week where we take another deep dive, literally going into the compliance weeds. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. We look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.